Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern. A lot to talk about today. We are closing in on the final parts of the season. We have uh, some exciting teams that have come about, as well as some exciting young talent that continues to impress. The West is a very tight race for the 5 through 10 seeds, and we'll have everybody's favorite segment, What's the Verdict? But starting with surging teams in the East, two teams in the East, the Knicks and the Wizards have been on a roll, winning nine and eight games in a row, respectively. Which one do you think has been more impressive? Well, to be completely honest with you, it's probably more impressive for the Wizards just because the New York Knicks, even though nobody wanted to believe it, there were hints and signs there all year long that this was a team that was at the very least an average to above average team. Um, It seemed like all season long, the difference between whether the Knicks won or not was whether they could consistently put up points but their defense has been consistent all year long. They've always been a good defensive team this year. Um, And I think the winning streak in large part has been due to the fact that number one, Julius Randle is playing out of his mind, um, playing like a bona fide all-star and his surrounding pieces are really developing and gelling and fitting together. And I think that now that they have the offense on a more consistent basis to match up with their very consistently good defense, you're starting to see more wins. The Wizards, on the other hand, were a team that everybody basically agreed they didn't have what it took to compete. Their roster just didn't have enough. Um, They were a flawed roster. They weren't pretty much good at anything. They weren't good at defense. They weren't really great at offense. Um, Outside of Bradley Beal, they weren't really getting efficient scoring from anyone else. I think the biggest difference for them has been Russell Westbrook turning in Um, his best stretch of the season as of late. He's been putting up a triple-double seemingly every night. He's going to have another season where he averages a triple-double again. And honestly, it's really impressive. We don't really talk enough about it. No one ever talks about Russell as one of the best point guards in the game. But when it's all said and done and he retires, it would be crazy to not say that he's top five um, based on what he's been able to do. Even if he never wins a championship, he is able to do things that – only Oscar Robertson um, has been able to do at the guard position before, and he's really even surpassed that. Even at age 33, he's still putting up insane numbers. Many thought that his athletic ability would have declined a little by now, including myself, but here he is um, still just putting up stats. And at this point, the biggest difference is that the stats are now translating to wins. So I think the Wizards really caught everybody off guard with this eight game winning streak. I don't think anyone thought they had the roster that was capable of that. Yeah. I think everybody left the wizards for dead. Now they're looking in on the playoffs, possibly getting into a playing game. And if they uh, continue to play like this, it's hard to see anybody beating them for two games. Uh, and they may be able to supplant uh, whichever team for that eighth spot. But yeah, the wizards overall, their third leading scorer, Thomas Bryant was out for the season after 10 games. Uh, after that, uh, Rui Achimura, was the next leading score with 13.5, but it really is a team that's been buoyed by Beal and Westbrook. Definitely not a championship contender team. Uh, I hope that their early first round exit does get uh, Scott's Brook potentially uh, ousted. I, I don't think he's utilizing that team or that group uh, effectively, and hopefully they do trade away Beal and maybe Russell's trade value has gone up and they can trade him to uh, a team that... Um, is going to be in contention next year. 
So while you're on that topic, you're basically saying that you are assuming they're going to make the playoffs then. I think they have a chance. I think that they definitely they have, have a, chance. a chance. It's really interesting. I mean, all right. So if you're looking at these teams, these are the guys that are all fighting potentially for that, uh, that eighth spot. So we're looking at, I think we can agree that the top seven teams are probably going to be the top seven teams. The real question is about that eighth team. So we're looking at the Hornets, the Pacers, the Wizards, the Bulls, and the Raptors. These teams are all within a game or two of getting there. So, I mean, out of those teams, which one do you think is going to end up taking it? I mean, I just based off of the way the Raptors and the Bulls have been playing as of late, I don't see them catching up to the Wizards by the end of the season. So I think one through 10 will stay the way that it is. I think that with the Wizards, if they continue to play like they are, have a chance to pass the Hornets and or Pacers for the eighth spot outright right now. And I think that they win. Um, at, at, I think they end up making it into the eighth spot. Honestly, the way that the season's winding down right now, that is the way that it's trending because you have teams seven through 10 are all playing winning basketball with teams eight through 10, all having games of two win streaks or better. The Wizards obviously with eight in a row and the Heat winners of six of their last 10. Um, it seems like you're, you're probably gonna be looking at the Wizards or the Hornets for that eighth spot. Yeah, I, I agree. And back to the Knicks, they've been playing out of their mind. Julius Randle has not only inserted himself into well, pretty much a clear-cut favorite for most improved player. But, he has to win it. But the MVP conversation, he's also inserted himself into that because this team, nobody expected them to be there. Um, at most, somebody expected them to be like the Wizards this year. Oh, they got a late push at the end of the season, doing well, tips for a season with a young team. But for them to have done and produced what they have this season – and then listen to Julius Randle talk about how Kobe inspired him to be in the gym before games, after games, working on his craft. And it clearly shows this season. Um, you have a bunch of guys that are bought into Tibbs' system, and uh, it's, it's paying off for him, kind of reminiscent of the young Bulls with Tibbs. One crazy stat about Julius Randle, you never really hear about Julius Randle as a playmaker or as a point forward. Julius Randle is just always cast as this like mispositioned power forward who's not quite big enough to be a center, but not quite athletic enough to be a small forward or a perimeter player. That's always been the story. No one's ever really thought of this guy as a playmaker, but he quietly averages six assists per game. That's honestly more assists than even Bam Adebayo gets. And Bam Adebayo is considered to be a playmaking forward. So it seems like for whatever reason, Julius Randle has really been underappreciated for a long time. Uh, he started out with that Lakers organization. They basically gave up on him and decided he was never going to reach his draft potential. Um, he ends up shipping out. He goes to the Knicks and he proves everybody wrong. Um, a lot of people thought that he had irrational confidence taking some of the shots that he used to take. People used to yell at him for taking three-pointers. They used to tell him, what are you doing shooting threes? You're not a perimeter guy. Here he is shooting 41% from three 
on 5.3 attempts per game. That's elite. So um, it's really nice for him just to see him reach his potential and prove everybody wrong because, you know, everybody had basically given up on, um, on Julius Randle ever reaching this level except for him. So good yeah, job I mean, for Julius. I love to root for a guy like that. That assist count that you mentioned, uh, it's more than Zion Williamson, Kawhi Leonard, Stephen Curry, almost as much as Kyrie Irving. Um, so it, more than Bradley Beal, like he's, it's not only the big men that he's outpacing from assist standpoint, it's also guards and forwards who are elite. So this is an all around player. People need to start recognizing him as an all around player and not just some misposition power forward. This guy's a player. He can do everything. Yeah. Well, speaking of all around, uh, there's a little bit of a buzz around the Hornets this season. And it's been because there's one player who's just all around the rim and it's Miles Bridges, who we've talked about as the best in-game dunker by far in the league right now. Um, but over the last 10, he's showing to be more than just that. He's averaging 20 points per game, 7.7 rebounds per game, 51% from the field, 45% from three. What do you feel his ceiling is on this team? Honestly, for Miles Bridges, this was a steal for the Hornets because this guy is only 23 years old. He's 23. That's the same age as current all-stars like Bam Adebayo and Jason Tatum. And we always talk about how much they still have to potentially right. grow and show. And Miles Bridges is a guy who's just as young as those guys with nowhere near as much of the hype. But here he is consistently putting up close to 20 points per game, 7.7 rebounds per game. And I think the most surprising thing, and this is what really takes a ceiling to the next level, is that whenever he came into the league, a lot of, um, a lot of people basically already knew he was an elite athlete. The guy was always someone who could jump out of the gym. Everybody always basically saw him as someone that should be an elite defender at worst, which he still hasn't really reached that level, but he definitely has the ability to with his measurables and physicals. But the biggest knock on him was, will he ever become polished enough to be able to score consistently? Is he really just a rim runner? Is he just a guy who can catch lobs? Like, can he do anything else? He is showing that he can do a lot more than just dunk, even though that's all we see him do on the highlights. He is shooting 45% from three. He's only 23 years old and he's, he's shooting from three at volume. It's not like he's only taking one or two shots a game and he's finding his own shot because at this point, since teams are afraid of the dunk, they're stepping back and giving him space to shoot and he's taking it. If you're giving him the shot, he's taking it and he's making it. And he puts defenses in a really tough spot because when he's knocking down that outside shot, it forces you to have to come and play up on him which with his athletic ability gives him the ideal ability to burst right by you and explode up for a dunk if he gets into that launching pad. So this guy is definitely a problem. I see him as a cornerstone for the Hornets. They would be crazy to trade him. He is trending right now based on his statistical output to be a future all-star at some point. Given that he's 23 years old, I find it hard to believe that at some point he won't become an all-star given the trajectory that he's on as long as he stays healthy. We know that he's a hard worker 
And he's in a situation where he's got great playmakers around him who are going to find him and feed him the ball. And he's encouraged to shoot. So I think that um, definitely the guy's going to be an all-star caliber player one day. Yeah, what's crazy too is his brother who plays for the Suns, Mikal, he's uh, also doing well this season. 13 points per game, almost 40% from three, 50 uh, plus percent from the rest of the field. So, I mean, they're, they're both uh, coming into their own here in their third professional season. But moving on from the Hornets, rookie of the year, speaking of the Hornets, actually, LaMelo, his extended absence is about to come to a close, and Anthony Edwards' rise has made this one more of a close race. Who do you have winning? You know, it's so tough because he did miss time. But at the same time, Anthony Edwards wasn't playing like this the whole year. So what do you really factor in more? The longevity, who's doing best at the moment, the present. For me, I personally think that it's probably still LaMelo just because of the body of work. I think that Anthony Edwards made it super close. But the fact that his team is already eliminated from playoff contention, while LaMelo has his team in position to make the playoffs in his rookie season, I think that that probably is what gives him the edge. Statistically, they're both putting up impressive performances, and you can pick and choose what's better about each. But I think the the bigger difference right now is that despite – I mean, you could argue that the Timberwolves have just as much talent as the Hornets, but the Hornets are playing better basketball. So I think that that's probably what would give him the edge to win the award. Yeah, I think it might give him the edge. I also think it depends on how he returns. Uh, if he returns and doesn't really play well, then and Anthony Edwards continues to dominate as he has been, 22 points per game in the last 10, 18 for this season. I, I think Anthony Edwards might get the slight edge, um, but I do think it is more of a toss-up. If LaMelo only missed, let's say, 10 games instead of the 20 that he has, then it would be a shoe-in. But I think the longer he takes to get back, the worse it's going to be for him and the sooner he comes back. And if he returns to form immediately, it's going to be hard to deny him that when his PER is over five points more than Anthony Edwards. Yep, I agree with that. Well, we talked a little bit about the East. I want to get into the West because it has gotten extremely close. (laughs) From the Lakers to the Warriors, five through ten, there's only four and a half games that separate those teams. It is anybody's race for the Lakers, Mavericks, Blazers, Grizzlies, Spurs, and Warriors in that order. So based off of that, I want to know what your projected five through 10 finishes, no playing games, just purely five through 10 finish from those teams. Five through 10. Okay. You know, I'm going to go ahead with, the Dallas Mavericks finishing at number five. I'm going to go with. Hmm, I'm going to go with the Blazers at number six, the Lakers at number seven. I'll probably go ahead and keep the Grizzlies at number eight. And I'll say the way that Curry's playing. Warriors nine, Spurs ten. All right. Um, for me, I'm gonna do Mavericks at six. Uh, War, or I'm sorry, Mavericks at five. 
Warriors at six, Lakers at seven, wow. Portland at eight, Memphis at nine, Spurs at 10. Yeah, this one's going to be really interesting because it's going to come down to so many factors. The Mavericks, I think, right now are the ones playing the best out of that group far and away. And I think that Luke has started to play the best basketball um, of the season for him at the right time. So a lot of times when you go into the playoffs, it's not always about who was the best team the whole year. It's about who is the hottest team going into those months. So sometimes a really hot team coming in at a lower seed like the Mavericks can surprise a couple teams and make a deep run if they're hot at the right moment like they are. So I think that's a shoe in for number five. For the Lakers, it really comes down to, is LeBron going to come back before the playoffs? I really think that um, without him, it's going to be tough to get this defense orchestrated because they obviously want to get the ball to Anthony Davis and get him involved. But without LeBron there to orchestrate everything, they don't really have a great point guard to get everyone in their sets, especially when now you have so much less spacing when you have a front court that is starting both Anthony Davis and Andre Drummond, who really has no ability to pull anyone outside the paint, which is where Anthony Davis likes to be. It makes it so that it's a lot tougher for Anthony Davis to get quality looks and not having LeBron really hurts them because that is his whole job to find them quality looks. So I think that for them, if he keeps missing games, I can see them sliding. It's really strange for the Portland Trailblazers, who were teams that was expected after the All-Star break to get a, a lift and a surge after getting Norman Powell. But here they are, losers of five in a row. Um, and I don't know if you want to blame um, Damian Lillard being a little bit hobbled, even though he won't say that or um, make it, that an excuse. But regardless, they're trending in the wrong direction at the wrong time, and they're already sitting at seven. So it definitely bodes really poorly for them I think that they're probably going to be a first round exit this year and I think that somehow Stephen Curry gets the Warriors to sneak in yeah uh, and I I want to pick up where you left off on that Stephen Curry note the reason why I have the Warriors climbing so much of their 11 next games seven of them are easily winnable it's against their their next 11 games in order Dallas toss-up Minnesota, easily winnable. Houston, easily winnable. Two New Orleans games, both easily winnable. Oklahoma City, two games, also easily winnable. Utah, Phoenix, both not easily winnable. However, both of these teams, because it's going to be the last four games of the season and they're going to be sitting probably at one and two respectively locked in, are probably going to start resting their stars. So the Warriors aren't going to be resting anybody. So those are also winnable. New Orleans again, Memphis to close. So the Memphis game is going to have huge ramifications, likely, given the way that this current structure is. But of the Warriors' next 11 games, they can easily go 7-4. and four, And they're 7-3 and three in their last 10. So if they go 7-4 and four and some of these teams continue at their 4-6, and 6-4, six, 5-5, six and, five and five, et cetera, then Warriors can easily supplant those teams. And they have the potential to go higher than 7-4. They can go 9-2. and two. But... That's my rationale there. I think with the Lakers, I could see them slipping more, like you said, because of LeBron's absence. And I think LeBron has historically been like, oh, I don't care about the seeding, but he's going to have to play an extra game or two if he continues to miss, given uh, the, the current standings overall. And uh, 
Trailblazers, I see them falling a little bit. Like you said, uh, Dame is a little bit hobbled. Grizzlies, I just don't think that they really have the uh, veteran leadership to keep them in the hunt like that closely. I see them more so being like an exciting first-round team because they knocked somebody out during the play-ins. And the Spurs, their team's good, but this is because of coaching. The only reason they're in the spot is because of coaching. DeMar DeRozan has been playing well, but Pop is just amazing. Yeah, I agree. It's incredible what Pop's able to do because if you look at that roster, they don't really have a whole lot. And he still somehow got them in there in possibility to make the playoffs, even with the skeleton roster. So it just goes to show you this guy really can get the most of any roster. But speaking of the West, another player in the West that's making huge moves Michael Porter Jr., this is somebody that we talked about when Jamal Murray went down because we knew that once Jamal Murray went down, this was going to seriously affect the dynamic of the Nuggets going forward. This was a team with serious aspirations in the playoffs. That was a a legitimate championship contender. Um, They were extremely deep, and they basically lose their second best player. And now everyone's wondering, did this team basically just lose the ability to compete for a championship this year? Um, Are they basically out of luck? That puts Michael Porter Jr. firmly in the secondary option role. And we know that this is a role that he's been dying for, for a while. And I think both you and I agreed that this was going to be very much to his benefit. And it seems like the Nuggets have yet to miss beat with Jamal Murray out. And while Michael Porter Jr. has stepped into a larger role, he's since been able to set his career high for three-pointers made twice in two consecutive games with seven three-pointers made and then eight three-pointers made, along with a career-high 39 points, um, really just showing everybody that he's fully capable of being that second option on offense. What do you think is Michael Porter Jr.'s ceiling? I think the sky's the limit for him. I do, however, think his ceiling will be uh, capped if – they continue to rely on Jamal Murray as a second option post returning from surgery. So Michael Porter Jr. eventually is either going to have to be the bona fide first or second option with Jokic being the facilitator or Michael Porter Jr. and or Jamal Murray is going to have to be traded because he's, like you said, benefiting from Jamal Murray being out. You never want to see your guy go down, especially in that locker room. But Michael Porter Jr. is only going to get better. And his 39-point game that he exploded for, he was 66% from three, 100% from free throw. Uh, The previous game to that, 50% from three. Before that, didn't shoot well. Before that, 62% from three, then 57% from three. And like you said, these were on high-volume marks. So this wasn't like, oh, he shot, made two out of three or two out of four. Um, So I, I think... His ceiling, like, sky's the limit. Um, he's a, a large player overall. I think he's 6'10". Um, so if he continues to improve his game and continues to improve uh, on defense as well, the offense is clearly there. It's going to be very difficult for the Nuggets to keep him and keep him satisfied in a tertiary role. Yeah, that's. I think what you said right there is the biggest thing. I've said this for a long time. Um, If you guys don't remember last year's playoffs, Michael Porter Jr. essentially came out and threw his coach under the bus after one of the games, essentially 
um, calling out the game plan as being much too reliant on Jamal Murray and Jokic, that it was too predictable and that there's other guys on the team that can score the ball like himself and that the Nuggets should do a better job of being more diverse, essentially campaigning for more shot attempts is what it seemed like in more minutes. Um, and I've always thought that, to be honest with you, Michael Porter Jr. is probably not going to be on that team long term because this guy, if you if you hear him talk, if you see him play, he doesn't want to be the second option either. He wants to be the first option. And he really will not settle until he gets that because he really does feel that he is that good. This is a guy that was going to be the number one pick until um, injuries with his back um, scared off a bunch of teams and he fell to 14. But this was a guy that when he was healthy, everyone was saying was the, the next coming of Kevin Durant. Given the fact that he's six foot 10, um, is extremely mobile, has great handles, great jump shot. He basically operates like a small forward or perimeter player at six foot 10 with great length and athleticism. And he's extremely efficient already. Um, this is a guy whose ceiling is clearly, I mean, he's only 22. This guy's probably going to be an all NBA type player, even if he never becomes the first option, just because there are so few guys in the league that can do what he does at his size, especially at the age that he is. So um, I think that he eventually is going to end up on a different team. But this is basically him coming out to the world and letting everybody know that he is an all NBA caliber player and that he definitely is more than good enough to lead a team in the playoffs and carry the load. So I think that what we're going to have to look at with him is um, how he performs in the playoffs. Last season, he didn't do as great in the playoffs. And you can maybe say that that was because of the role he was in. Um, it was strange to be bringing him off the bench. He barely got attempts. Um, it seems that the usage was pretty low, but this playoffs is going to be completely different. Murray's not going to be there. He's going to have plenty of opportunity to make his name in the playoffs. And I think that if he has a big playoff performance, as good as that may be for the Nuggets, it also probably is going to be that much more of a guarantee that some other team makes him a maximum offer um, whenever he becomes a free agent and he leaves to become the number one guy somewhere else. See what happens there, but definitely will be interesting to watch where he ends up or if the Nuggets end up going with uh, him and Jokic as opposed to him, Jokic and Murray. But moving on to another exciting young star that we have talked about incessantly, but he continues to impress and dominate. Zion Williamson hits a mark that only MJ has hit. He joins him as the only players to reach 2,000 points in their first 80 games. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what else we can say about Zion. He's just been completely dominant this year. He's third in player efficiency right now. He is also expanding his game. I think the worst part about his situation right now is that he's on a losing team that won't be in the playoffs, but it'll happen soon. I think that team, Brandon Ingram has improved this year. Zion has improved this year. And that team overall will just continue to get better as they grow and get older. Yeah, this guy is just incredible. Only 20 years old. Honestly, it might be even more impressive what Zion Williamson is doing than even Jordan because of the efficiency. If you look at the efficiency that he's doing at, that is what's mind-blowing. Jordan was a pretty efficient scorer when he was 
um, putting up these numbers, don't get me wrong, but he was not shooting 61%. That is absurd to be shooting that kind of efficiency at that sort of volume. And if you look at his stats on a monthly basis um, for this year, it looks like an exponential math curve. It just keeps going up and up and up every month. His production has not tapered off. We don't even know what his production could have possibly been in another month of playing because it, it was probably going to keep going up. It's just been increasing every single month. So who knows where it'll finally taper off and level off at. What is clearly evident is that the league doesn't have an answer for him just yet. And once he learns to leverage his abilities to make winning plays, to get his teammates in position to win games and um, look at it from that perspective, instead of just individually dominating the game, I think we're going to start to see him really produce in the playoffs. And it'll be really interesting to see um, if he can remain healthy because right now he's trending like the kind of guy who's going to end up being like a top three player of all time, at least. So I think we're watching history in the making right now. Yeah, it is impressive to watch and definitely very fun and exciting. And he just released his uh, first signature shoe with Michael Jordan. So it'll uh, yep. be perfect, perfect guy to sign with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now time for everybody's favorite segment. What's the verdict? I will ask you a series of questions and you will give me whether they're guilty or innocent, depending on the situation. Ready to go? Let's do it. Stephen A has said that given the Knicks success, Katie and Kyrie may regret passing on the Knicks and going to the Nets. Are Katie and Kyrie guilty of not giving the Knicks enough consideration? Um, I don't really think so because I think that for them, it's really hard to argue with the results when they're still currently sitting at number one. I mean, yeah, the Knicks overachieved, but the Nets are still sitting at number one. So I don't really see what the Nets or uh, what Kyrie and KD would have to regret about joining the Nets. So far, it's worked out great for them. They've barely even played together, and it hasn't even mattered. They're still rolling to the number one seed. And I think the biggest thing is they just wanted to be in a situation where they were not associated with James Dolan. Um, I think that they both know, as guys who have been around the league for long enough, that being on an organization where you have a toxic ownership that's constantly getting in the way of coaches, general managers, and other people doing their job because they think they know better, that usually doesn't produce winning or stable situations. So I think that for them, that was the major thing that made them go to the Nets over the Knicks, basically the ownership. And again, their first place right now, it's, I mean, what can you really do to question their decision? It's panned out beautifully for them. Yeah, I, I don't understand Stephen A. Sometimes I agree with him. Sometimes don't agree with him at all other times. And this is one of the latter. I To say right now that they may, may regret passing on the Knicks, think about where the Knicks were last season. This is not how their season was. They didn't have Tibbs as a coach. Um, Julius Randle was not playing this well. And overall, just the team was not in contention. So to say that now they're in hindsight looking back, like you said, while they're sitting in the number one seed. Also, if you're on the Knicks, they would not have had the 
firepower or the players or the talent really to send over to get James Harden. And if they did, it'd be a completely different team if they sent Julius Randle and RJ Barrett over to Houston to get James Harden. So it's just one of those things that sure it's fun to say because they're both in New York and maybe they regret it, but the the teams would have been completely just constructed differently. You wouldn't have had James Harden there when both Katie and Kyrie were out. So overall, I, I just don't, uh, I don't agree with him in that situation, but moving on the NBA may consider keeping the play in tournament after the season. Are they guilty of trying to fit in more games for non-competitive teams? I think they definitely are. Um, I know that they're trying to basically account for the fact that because of COVID and random situations where you have people in and out of the lineup, there's the possibility where a team that otherwise could have been good enough to make the playoffs, maybe because of random chance events, because of their best players being held out or something like that, they end up missing it. And I guess they were trying to cover for that by allowing for play in tournament. Let's say that one of those types of teams gets all their pieces back right in time for the playoffs. Um, that would give them an opportunity to earn their way in. And that way the best team is represented and you're not having a team in there simply because they were the ones that were the healthiest or most available. So I can understand a little bit that mindset, but the thing is beyond this season, it doesn't make any more sense. Um, especially now that we have the COVID situation more under control, players are not going to be expected to miss as many games. And the other aspect that I think is the biggest thing is we know that the amount of games played between rounds and the amount of games that you rest, it does have a big impact on your performance. So I just don't like it from the standpoint of if you're a team that you battled all year long to get the seventh or the eighth seed, now you have to essentially play extra games and revalidate that seeding because it puts you at a disadvantage going forward in the later rounds because you've already had to play more games. So I just don't think it makes it as fair. I think it basically dooms um, the seventh and eighth seeds to essentially be eliminated pretty much right away um, after the play-in tournament. But I get, that's just how I see it. I think that it's just... Uh, it just puts the seventh and eighth seed at too much of a disadvantage. So I like it, but I think it should have a few extra rules added. So I think to make it more competitive and to make it something that's worth fighting for, I think to be considered for it, you have to have a winning record or at least a 500 record. So right now the Pacers and the Wizards wouldn't make it in that scenario, but the Spurs and the Warriors would both make it. I also think that the delta between the seventh seed and the last seed that's allowed to go into that play-in tournament should be three games. After that, you're not allowed into the tournament. So at least there, it makes it like these teams are competitive teams. They've been playing well all season. And to your point, maybe they had an injury here, injury there, but it would eliminate this like as good of a story as the Wizards have been you don't want to see a Wizards team that is 27 and 33 if the season ended today make it to the seventh seed. That just right. wouldn't, or the eighth seed rather. That just wouldn't be fair to the Hornets, who are three games ahead of them, who have grinded it out all season and managed to stay above 500. So I think you need to put in 
filters there so that it disincentivizes. Well, we can just play for the 10th seed. We don't have to necessarily win all year. Um, and I think that overall that would just make for better basketball. But I think they're just going to end up writing it because they want to have more games. Moving on. Yeah. Anthony Davis returns for the Lakers, but they lost both games. Davis said that the Lakers are basically starting over again in terms of finding chemistry with only a few games remaining before the playoffs. Are the Lakers guilty of being too late to figure it out and contend in the playoffs? Honestly, I do. I do think it might be a little too late just because the integration of Andre Drummond as it is, it just, it completely changes the complexion of their team. And everything about the Lakers right now has the look and sound of a team that is having a lot of internal problems. Anytime that you have players openly admitting to the media that there's problems, that's really bad because that means that things are boiling over. These, these guys are veteran guys that are saying this stuff too. They know that this stuff is not good for their team. It means that they're so frustrated that they can't help themselves in the interviews, but to admit that there are problems. You have Mark Gasol the other day asked in an interview, um, what do you guys think about the Lakers power forward center rotation? He responds with, you're asking the wrong guy. I just work here. Implying essentially ask Frank Vogel about it, that there is an issue. I don't agree with it either. He didn't defend it because he, he has complained about it. There is a log jam now in the front court. I did say this earlier that I thought that the addition of Andre Drummond, while it might be nice as a stopgap because Anthony Davis was missing games, having him and Anthony Davis together in the front court without adequate floor spacers was going to make the offense a little bit congested. It makes them a little bit too predictable and easy to defend. And while Anthony Davis is a really good shooter, he would prefer to operate in the paint. And Andre Drummond's lack of ability to score outside of the paint and lure anyone out of the paint basically makes Anthony Davis's life harder anytime that Andre Drummond shares the floor with him. And I can only imagine when LeBron gets on the court, he loves to attack the paint too. How is he ever going to get in there? I, I really don't know why they did this. They're going to probably have to bring him off the bench is what would be the best fit, but it's just hard to bring him off the bench when you have like a star player like Drummond that you're apparently making a big investment in. You essentially have the pressure of feeling like you have to start him, but it's just not good for the dynamic of the team. And like, like Anthony Davis said, it is like having to forge the chemistry completely from scratch because they have to completely change the playing style that they had before if they're going to integrate Andre Drummond into the starting lineup. So I think it is really unfortunate for them. LeBron is not even there to figure out that piece. So they still have to figure out how to reintegrate him when he gets back. And we have the playoffs about to begin. So, and they're trending in the wrong direction. So unfortunately for them, I think that they could possibly still, um, they're probably going to still get out of the first round as long as they don't have to face the one or two seed. I think they'll probably advance past the first round still, but it's probably going to be a really long grueling series. And I think it's going to expose a lot of holes for that team. So that's what I see coming for them. I see something similar. I think luckily they do have LeBron James on that team. And if anybody can figure it out, it's LeBron. But, uh, and the other piece too is Anthony Davis did have success with DeMarcus Cousins in New Orleans when they were the Twin Towers there. So if they- But he could shoot. 
uh, yeah, I get it. But overall. And pass. And dribble. Well, I'm not saying Drummond is the same as DeMarcus Cousins. But. Not even close. I think Drummond is better than Marcus All. Yes, but Marcus All is different in the sense that you actually have to go and defend him out on the perimeter at least a little bit. He obviously is bit. not as good of a player, but fit-wise, it makes Anthony Davis's life easier, fit-wise, even if he can't do all the other things as well. On offense, it makes his life harder. Fair. I do think, though, this will be – if LeBron were to win a championship this season, this would be one of the harder championships he's ever won because – Absolutely. He's not going in with a cushion like he always does. Exactly. He's going to have to play from the bottom. And dealing with chemistry issues like we talked about, dealing with coming back from an injury, so on and so forth. Yeah, this is not how they envisioned it going, but it's pretty much exactly how I called it going at the beginning of the season on our very first podcast. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens there. But moving on, so far, Stephen Curry, Joel Embiid, and James Harden have all come out and expressed that they should be the MVP this year. Is the most likely MVP candidate guilty of having not made an MVP claim? I mean, I think that pretty obviously the front runner for MVP at this point has to be Nikola Jokic. And that is what's so awesome about him too. He is probably the front runner, but he's not saying a word. Everybody else is basically politicking saying I should be the MVP, I'm the guy, I'm the MVP. But here we have Nikola Jokic, the only guy who is top 10 in PER, assists, rebounds, and points. Number one in PER. The guy has his team winning even after they lose their second best player. He's doing everything at an elite level shooting 57% from the field, 40% from three, 85% from the free throw. He's essentially one of the best point guards in the league too, as a center. And it's translating to winning ball. They're winning, they're, they're rolling. I mean, I, I think that it's impossible to not give it to him at this point. He basically has won it. The only way they could take it away from him is if, Stephen Curry gets the Warriors to the fifth seed. If they're one spot behind Denver after this grueling season, and it's because Steph Curry has scored almost 40 points a game over his last like 10 to 15 games, it's the only way I see them taking it away from Jokic. I think it is definitely a Stephen Curry versus Jokic race right now. Joel Embiid yeah. has had a great season overall. I think he's missed a good amount of games uh, to be in contention for it, like true contention for it. And I think the recency effect of Stephen Curry doing so well to close out the season, if the narrative is he carried this team into the fifth spot after they look like they were on the outskirts of the playoffs, then it's going to be very difficult for people to not give it to Stephen Curry. Yeah. I think it's all just going to come down to, can he get his team in the playoffs? Yep. Well, speaking of him, he set the record for the most three-pointers made in a month with 85, and we still have 
five days left or four days left in the month of April. He's averaging 38.2 points per game through this month. And James Harden, the man he passed at 82 threes, had a hot stretch where he scored 30 points per game and 32 straight games while averaging 41 points per game during that stretch. Who do you feel had the more impressive stretch? Is it is Stephen Curry guilty of having a better stretch now? This one's really tough because when James Harden did this, it was very historic. Um, I remember at the time he had surpassed Wilt Chamberlain for the second longest streak of 30 straight games or of 30 point consecutive games. And it was incredible to watch. He was during that streak having games of 60 points, regularly dropping 40 and 50. Um, He was a machine and they were winning too. And he did have the higher point total, didn't make as many threes, but did score more points overall. And his team did have the better overall record during that time span. So he had more team success. But I think somehow, if I'm just remembering what I saw with my eyes, I still have to give it to Steph Curry as more impressive just because the difference to me is when Harden was doing that, it was really incredible to watch. But Harden had basically done two things really well. He had basically mastered the game of chess that was drawing fouls. And he mastered what it was to put the defense in compromising positions so that he was always getting high percentage shots no matter what. That was the year that the three-point shot became a shot that was consistently fouled on because of the threat of the step back and um, the high volume at which James Harden was able to make difficult shots from three like the step back. But I think that Stephen Curry has had to do it basically all alone. If you watch Stephen Curry do it, he basically shooting shots where there's two and three guys blanketing him the moment that he crosses half court because he's getting no help from no one else. We're having games where Draymond Green is getting like 19 assists, but only two points because it's basically just him finding Steph Curry somewhere and then Curry just throws it up and it just goes in. There are shots that look completely ridiculous and as impossible as James Harden's streak looked, I think that he probably would have a harder time replicating what Steph Curry's been able to do on those attempts than Steph Curry would have a more, uh, or would have a difficulty reproducing what James Harden was able to do during that stretch. James Harden had a much better team. He had a lot of spacing. He had great looks consistently every time down the floor. And he had a lot of people that he could consistently know would knock down shots that you had to stick on Stephen Curry, on the other hand, he's getting triple teamed, double teamed with regularity, and it still doesn't matter. And he's shooting a higher percentage across the board. So I'd say probably Stephen Curry's is more impressive. It's also more impressive. uh, What he's been able to do in this stretch has been just out of out of this world. Um, And the shots that he's making are also just out of this world. So like you said, James Harden great at creating creating space but Steph can just throw it up from anywhere with as many hands in his face falling backwards shifting off to the side etc shots that you would tell um young players that are learning to play the game of basketball to never do don't (laughs) ever do that 
Speaking of Den- that, I mean, did you see the Bulls <laughs> announcers when Denzel Valentine pulled pulled up from like Steph Range, and they were just like, "Oh no, oh, no, no, no!" <laughs> because he's inspiring people to, to to pull up like this and take these shots, but these are actually awful shots. Like he he isn't even set on some of these. He's just falling, flicking it. I mean, he practices these, so yeah, he can make them. But there's no one else that can do this. This is like a once in a generation type of thing that you're not going to be able to reproduce. Nobody can do that kind of stuff. And I think that it's a mistake for people to think that they can. Drew Holiday said it best the other day. He's like, no, like he is honestly becoming a bad influence on a lot of kids because they want to be like Stephen Curry. They want to pull up and shoot these shots from like half court in their, in their high school games and in their middle school games. And it's just ruining offenses because this is a terrible shot for everyone not named Stephen Curry. Yeah, and that's I, you know maybe there will be. I mean, you look at Trey Young, but there's going to be replications of this in the league. But when you're 10, 12, 15 playing high school basketball, like this is muscle memory that Steph has developed from tens of thousands of hours with probably hundreds of thousands of threes with how many shots he probably puts up during practice. So this isn't something where, Hey, you should implement this as a freshman in high school. So I agree with Drew holiday on that point, but that wraps up the show. Like subscribe and tune in every week, Wednesday mornings. We are on every major podcast station. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned.